Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're glad that we can be here this evening, that you've brought us here safely, and that we can spend this time devoted to the study of your word and to be strengthened and encouraged by the truths that are there. Father, may we be uh, constantly mindful of the fact that you have uh, saved us for a purpose, and that is to glorify you both in time and in eternity, and that you have a specific destiny for us that you have set before us, and that we have a race to run. And we need to run it for your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I said on Tuesday night that we'd have a little bit of a slideshow. Now, I didn't even take my camera this year, so we were limited on pictures because I tend to do the same thing every year and sit in the same seat. And the pictures all got to where they all looked the same from year after year. But the students and a couple of other people were taking pictures, so I do have a few slides to show. So it's slideshow time. Now this is the room in the Hebrew school where the, this is actually the room I think that the children use on Sunday, but that is used by the church on Wednesday night for a Wednesday night Bible class. And it holds about 45 people or so, and it uh, was pretty packed on that particular night. And then... Um, so we just used the wall for a screen and uh, used the LCD projector to put stuff up there. On those nights, I taught a ser- you know, sections of some things I had taught before on the value and importance of the Bible and how important the Bible is. Let me see if I can do something here. Now, here's one member of West Houston Bible Church who managed to find his way to Bible class that night. And the kids didn't make it, but the, the rest of the family was all there. And we had a uh, great time. The, the Tebos came over, and we spent, uh, they were there for a week. And so we had a chance to uh, take them around and show them Kiev and also to spend some time with Jim and Phyllis to go out to their uh, country house. Uh, they Last year, some of you may not know this, but instead of staying living in the city in an apartment, they bought a house in a small village called Rozhevka that's about 20 miles from where most of the ministry uh, operates. And it takes about 25, 30 minutes to drive back and forth. But it's really great. And it ha- they've got about an acre of land, and they have some outbuildings. And Jim's hope is that as the Lord provides, perhaps they can even build some other buildings there. They've got what would be a garage-slash-barn that... Uh, Perhaps they would have the opportunity to uh, fix that up and maybe even put a second story on it and convert that to a dorm and maybe maybe some classrooms. So that's his plan in uh, out there at uh, Rojevka, and it's a lot cheaper. One of the problems that they've run into this year, more so than in years past, is the cost of living increase in Kiev. When they first went there. 
10, 11 years ago, a two-room two apartment, which for us would be like a one-bedroom maybe, a two-room apartment would, could be rented for about $75 a month. When I first started going over there five or six years ago, a two, a, what we would call a two-bedroom apartment, which is really large for over there, would run about 200 uh, Ukrainian could probably rent one for about $150 a month, and now we're talking about maybe $500 or $600 a month. There was a report on BBC uh, when I was over there that Kiev is now the has the most expensive real estate in Eastern Europe, and a one-room apartment. Now, that's not a one-bedroom. That's a one-room, about the size of the kitchen there, what we would call an efficiency apartment sells a standard non-modernized one-room efficiency sells for $100,000. So that has made really put the financial pressure on the ministry because when Jim runs the college and the church, he rents two or three apartments which serve as dorm, dormitories for the students. He also has... Uh, about eight or ten paid full-time paid employees, and of course they have to pay rent where they live. So all of this eventually comes back to raise the bottom line of the operation of the ministry. So there have been a couple of things they've had to curtail, but it's also been great to see how the Lord's continue to uh, provide and increase the income for the ministry and take care of things, even though it is no longer the nice, uh, inexpensive deal that it was uh, even five or six years ago, and prices continue to go up. And that's one reason he hopes that he can eventually convert uh, the this uh, land out in Rozhevka to where they'd have the colleges because it would cut the overhead tremendously. But when we were there, there's uh, out in this little village, and I've never been out there in the... I've never been out there other than in the dead of winter. But there was a, a lake that was sort of... Uh, like it was government-owned, and all the land around it was government-owned, but somebody had a little graft or something, and they uh, got convinced the government to sell this land and the lake to a private developer. And so he's building houses around the lake, like townhouses. I mean, these are large houses, but they're just, it's not like on an acre each. It's like they're right next to each other. And they're selling for a million dollars each. So this is, it's just completely out of control over there. This is all the staff that works with Jim. The uh, gray-haired man in the back left row is Sasha uh, Vladimirov, and he's the driver, drives everyone everywhere and picks me up at the airport. And he was a student a few years ago, and he has several uh, Bible classes around the city that he teaches. And the blonde is Nina, who's the secretary for the college. And then, I can't remember his name, but he's the assistant pastor uh, for the church. And um, his name will come to me in a minute. Then Jim's in the middle. And then uh, Oleg, who's the uh, sort of the director for the college. And then Victor. There's two Victors. The Victor to the left of Jim, and then there's another Victor. They serve as uh, two assistant pastors for the church, and the church is becoming more and more uh, Ukrainian in nature, which is the ultimate goal is to have the congregation be able to uh, be completely run by uh, by the Ukrainians. And then Margaret, who is our tremendous interpreter. In fact, Steve Tebow asked me, uh, after church on Sunday, he said, boy, that was really distracting because you make it, you say something, say a sentence, and then she translates. And while she's translating, I just completely lose focus. And I said, well, everybody else is concentrating better than you are. And he said, well, how do you know that, that she is translating things correctly? And I said, well, just over the years, so many people have come that, that where they're, they're bilingual and they listen, to, they can understand what I'm saying, they understand her translation and they comment on how excellent her ability is to take what we teach and what we say and put it into the Ukrainian idiom. And then on the front row there's Phyllis on the left and then Victoria 
in sort of the gold turtleneck. She's a secretary now for the church, and she's also a doctor. A doctor in Ukraine makes about $250 a month, so she's actually a secretary for the church moonlighting as a doctor. And then uh, Oksana, who is also secretary for, who is actually Jim's uh, personal secretary, and she is uh, uh, the sister of Bogdana, who is George Meisinger's secretary at Schaefer Seminary, in case you didn't know that. It's all just sort of this nepotism thing within the body of Christ is interesting. But we've arranged for Oksana to be able to come here for the pastor's conference in March, and Bogdana will be coming as well, so that will be good for them to uh, be able to get together. And then I'm not sure who the lady is uh, sitting to her left. That may be um, Victor, Victor's wife, one of the Victor's wives. But that's the staff. Then we have the students. And this year, I think there are 10 students. Last year, he started off with 13, but at the last minute, I think three students had to drop out. So this was the last day after everybody had finished the final. And so they were all horsing around and having a good time. And this new facility that Jim has is really great because it's a, a fairly large classroom compared to what we had before. And they've been able to mount the LCD projector from the ceiling and have a screen there so that it's a lot more uh, effective place to teach. And on the last day, they always have a cake and give candy to the professor, which I pass out to all the students. So they take a good picture of the cake, and then they started working on, not only on the cake, but they started trying to load all these pictures onto my computer, and so that became the primary object of attention. So those were the pictures for, for this year. But this individual, this red-headed fellow, his um, uh, name is Vitali, and this is his second year, and he is uh, really going to have a tremendous ministry. He's, uh, he speaks English fairly well, but he is very motivated. Last year was his first year, and every teacher noticed this. You'd teach about five minutes, and he would ask ten questions. And I, you just have to sit on them and say, Vitaly, if you'll keep your mouth shut for two days, all these questions will be answered, but let us build, teach, and get there. But he's just so enthusiastic, just overwhelmed, and uh, he's doing a lot better this year. He doesn't ask as many questions, and he's putting a lot of things together very bright. He and his brother are both students, and they are the two of several sons of a pastor there in Kiev. So it's uh, good to see uh, young men like this. He sort of has entertains hopes of being able to come to America. His English isn't quite good enough, though, but he hopes that he'll be able to come here and uh, study. Okay, let's get into our study in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, and we're working through the paragraph on verses 9 through 12. Now, last time, as I went through this, we sort of built a case for where I was headed. We just barely got there, and then it was time to take a break. And so our break is extended now for three or four weeks. So most of us need a little review to catch up and put our head back into this particular uh, passage. The first thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying here in verse 9 is that we can have confidence that despite failure and whatever failures his readers have experienced, however they have uh, fallen away, however they've been tempted to go back into Judaism, whatever their spiritual uh, problems are at this particular time, he is reminding them that God's grace is always sufficient for their recovery, that, they're, that there's nothing they're going to do that is too great for the grace of God. And so after uh, several passages, several paragraphs where he has just verbally rebuke them and challenge them with the dangers of spiritual regression, he now comes back on a very positive note to encourage them that they can indeed go forward and that God's grace is sufficient despite any failure on their part. 
He says in verse 9, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Not that you're going to fall away, but we're confident of better things. Yes, things that accompany salvation. And again, point out that salvation here is the Greek noun soterion, which has a future orientation. Remember, there are three stages to salvation. Stage one is justification. And very rarely does the Scriptures use, or very rarely do the Scriptures use, the sozo terminology, salvation, so, uh, salvation, um, uh, being saved. Uh, this type of terminology is a translation for sozo to refer to what we normally refer to as salvation. It's entered into, you know, evangelical uh, idiom to talk about in, uh, entering into heaven, being born again as getting saved. And so we tend to always, every time you read that word saved or salvation, we tend to think of phase one or stage one salvation justification. But there are many passages where it is just not used that way. In fact, I'm uh, convinced that there's possibly only one place in the entire book of Romans where the the word sozo refers to uh, stage one uh, salvation. We have many passages such as, such as in Romans chapter 5. I'm looking for the passage right now. Romans chapter 5. Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. Past tense. We shall be saved, future tense, from wrath through Him. So you see, you can be justified and you're not yet saved. Now see, everybody got confused as soon as I said that. Because you're... You, you're typical evangelicals who think that salvation means phase one. Every time you hear that, that's what you think. But Paul doesn't use it that way most of the time. He uses it to refer to either phase two or phase three. It's working out the results. Remember, stage one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Penalty of sin was spiritual death. So at stage one, we become regenerate. In stage two, we're saved from the power of sin. That's Romans chapter 6 through 8. We're being saved from the power of sin. We don't have to sin anymore because sin is no longer our uh, master. It's no longer our tyrant. That's Romans chapter 6. We have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to obey him in righteousness. And then stage 3 is glorification. It is when we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, when we are saved from eternal condemnation and say from the presence of sin. So that's what uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about and we can go back to Hebrews chapter 1 where the first where we find the first use of this word in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 are they not all ministering spirits set forth to minister or to serve those who will inherit salvation and inheritance remember is a glorification issue at the judgment seat of Christ, which is when we receive our inheritance. So this is all future-oriented phase three. That's how it's used. So don't fall into this trap of just thinking of salvation terminology, saved, to be saved, salvation as justification. And never that, that word group never refers to phase one in the book of Hebrews. It never refers to it in Hebrews with one, I mean in Romans with one possible exception. So it's just not the standard biblical way of expressing phase one. That's usually talked about in terms of reconciliation or redemption or justification rather than are you saved? Now, second point that the writer of Hebrews makes in this paragraph is that God's justice doesn't forget Neglect or overlook that which we have done in the power of the Spirit. Whatever you have done in the power of the Spirit is going to be gold, silver, and precious stones at the judgment seat of Christ. Because no matter how you fail, that doesn't get tarnished. It doesn't turn into wood, hay, and straw. You may 
uh, forfeit some rewards due to regression and a lack of capacity, but you don't lose whatever divine good is produced in your life. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And this is the uh, second point that... Uh, Paul makes is God is going to remember your work and labor of love and we spent a lot of time talking about how work and labor were not wrong Just, you know as soon as we hear that word work we're like Maynard G. Krebs and the old Dobie Gillis show you work work's wrong that's legalism no work is one of those value neutral words and it depends on the context in fact it's always been understood among Christians that work is a virtue that's where you get the old Protestant work ethic Work is a virtue and discipline, that these, this is something that is uh, to be part of the, of something that is to be cultivated as a virtue in, uh, in the Christian life. The other aspect of this verse is this word translated minister. Twice we have the use of the verb, um, let's skip through this slide, twice we have the use of the verb diakoneo. And diakoneo means to minister, to serve, in some senses, it has the idea of financial help, but it has that idea of serving other believers, helping one another as part of the Christian life. So the emphasis here is on Christian service as very much a part of the spiritual life. Now, where this gets into problems is that it is not uh, the cause of spirituality, but is a result of spirituality. And one of the problems that we have today is indicated by a recent survey that George Barna's group did is that most Christians have no idea whether or not they're being spiritual. They have no idea how to get there. Most pastors don't. I mean, there were fewer than 10% of the pastors really had any kind of a tool for measuring the spiritual growth, their own spiritual growth, not to mention the spiritual growth of their own congregation. Now, why is that? Because most pastors don't have a model or a blueprint for how spiritual growth happens. They don't understand the mechanics. So they, they have no way of measuring it. Another thing that came out in that same survey was that 70% or that pastors thought that 70% of their congregation thought they put God as their highest priority. Awfully naive. I mean, this is just standard across the board. Whereas only 15% of regular church-going Christians, only 15% said that God was their highest priority. Now, that's a tremendous difference. The pastors are in la-la land. They think 70% of the congregations are positive. And the congregations are sitting there going, no, most of us really aren't. It says a lot about Christianity. We developed this chart where the Word is taught through the filling of the Holy Spirit, and that becomes epinosis knowledge or usable spiritual knowledge, potential spiritual growth base in your thinking. We have divine viewpoint comes in, human viewpoint goes out. Uh, that's the operation of Romans 12.2. And we, as we walk by the Spirit, it produces spiritual production and Christ-like character on the one hand, but it also produces Christian service on the other hand. And this can take a lot of different manifestations, as I pointed out. This can take uh, manifestations in terms of your spiritual gift. It can be helping out a church. It can be uh, ushering. It can be coming down vacuuming the church or sweeping out. It can be going out and, and uh, being involved in missions or helping missionaries. It can be, uh, uh, there are as many different ways that Christian service can look as there are people and personalities and spiritual gifts. But it is a function of our royal priesthood and our royal ambassadorship. Now, I'm going to insert something new here that comes out of these verses. There's an emphasis on work, their labor of love, and their service. But what is emphasized in these verses is also Christian virtue. We have the emphasis in Hebrews 6, verse 
verse 10, on their labor of love. And then in verse 11, there is the mention of hope. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to or in the direction of the full assurance of hope until the end. And then in verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So you have what? Faith, hope, and love. These are have been referred to historically as the three Christian virtues. And as I've been reflecting on this, I've been doing some reading among uh, a number of uh, pretty good Christian scholars who've done a lot of reflection and study on different aspects of trends in our culture today. And one of the things that we have lost in the last hundred years is an emphasis on virtue, and it's been replaced by values. Now, that our, the concept of virtue comes out of the, the word itself, virtus, comes out of the Latin, but its root is in Greek in the word arete, which in Greek thought had to do with a habitual or a cultivated excellence. Now, think about that just a minute. Uh, virtue as a cultivated excellence. Now, you can talk about the Greek virtues. You can talk about uh, the, the seven virtues in the Catholic Church, and that starts off with chastity, and so you know where that goes. Um, but in the Scriptures, you do have an emphasis on on virtue, and virtue was a cultivated excellence. It is a, an understanding that there is an absolute standard or an absolute criteria toward which people should be moving, that it involves training, it involves self-discipline and self-mastery in order to see these virtues worked out in our lives. And if you go back and you read uh, typical self-improvement manuals in the late 19th century, early 20th century, the emphasis is on developing these virtues. There was an understanding that there were absolute character traits that people should cultivate in their lives if they were going to be productive members of society and not end up as criminals. And what's happened over the last hundred years is the whole concept of virtue has disappeared from textbooks and from uh, school education, from churches, and the, the big catch, uh, catch word that we hear today is values. But there's a difference between virtues and values, and I've got five points here to summarize this. First of all, virtues are absolutes. Values are relative. Virtues are absolute. Values are relative. Virtues have to do with absolute character traits, such as love, uh, honor, justice, Truth, these are uh, perseverance, self-mastery, self-control. These are virtues, uh, whereas values tend to be relative. There are every different group in society, if you're coming from a postmodern framework, has different values. So values tend to values are relative. Second observation. Virtues are righteousness driven. Let's say Christian virtues are righteousness driven. They are, because they're absolutes that come from, come from outside the realm of creation, they're grounded in the character of God, they are driven by righteousness as the absolute standard. Values, on the other hand, are, are morality driven. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm, I'm using this the term morality as a term of relative value within different societies or different cultures. Every culture has some sort of ethical system. Some have higher ethical systems than others. But every society has some sort of moral code, some sort of, of uh, ethic. But they are relative to culture. And they are relative to whatever uh, system of knowledge uh, that they operate on, whereas biblically speaking, we're grounding virtue in the unchangeable, the immutable character 
of God, his righteousness, and that sets the ultimate standard for human behavior. So the second observation was that virtues are righteousness-driven, whereas values are morality-driven. Third observation, virtues are something to be achieved, to be worked toward, to be striven after, and instilled by instilled by parents into children. When was the last time you heard parents teaching uh, virtues to their children, saying this is what you must strive for? When, when I was a kid, some of you have heard this story before, but when I was a kid, I remember that in elementary school you had certain character traits that were listed on one side of the report card. And one of those was self-control. And my dad had his K-bar a Marine Corps knife that I lusted after, and he said that if I could get pluses, three uh, grading periods in a row, then he would give me that knife. That took a while. But that was the idea, was instilling this sense of virtue, of training and discipline, and trying to achieve uh, certain character qualities uh, in, in the life, and that has been lost. So virtues are something that are to be achieved, that are to be worked towards, striven after, and instilled in children by parents. Values, on the other hand, are personal preferences or culturally driven choices. These are my values. Those are your values. That's their values. These are treated today as this as personal preferences, not objective, eternal absolutes. Fourth observation, virtue is related to character development. Virtue is related to character development, a recognition that man is born evil or sinful or depraved, and so there has to be an instilling of discipline into a person to, to, for, for them to strive to the better parts uh, of humanity and higher values that are not normal or natural to him. But, of course, this means that from the very uh, birth of a child, parents need to start utilizing discipline, including corporal discipline. This is why the proverb, uh, writer of Proverbs says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but it's the rod of correction that drives it far from him. So the parent's job is not to beat the kid, but the parent's job is to bring in negative consequence, immediate negative consequences to selfish, self-centered, arrogant behavior on the part of a child. And when the parent cannot administer that discipline immediately, then the child begins to think that he can get away with certain things and have things his own way. And this is the problem that you've got now in uh, California with this law that they want to pass, that making it illegal for parents to, to uh, spank their children before the age of three. Guess what? You've lost it by then. If you haven't started disciplining your children before three, then you'll never get them back. And they'll raise a generation of even more foolish people than they've already got out in California. Can you imagine that? They're going to get even worse. Now, I can't wait for some Christian, and this ought to happen. When this, five minutes after this law goes into effect, some Christian needs to be prepared with a whole bank of, of First Amendment lawyers that are out there defending Christian rights and go out into the town square right there in front of City Hall in Los Angeles and pick up their one-year-old and spank him and cause this to go to a court case. Because this is where you have clear mandates of Scripture that a parent's responsibility is to discipline the child, and that includes corporal punishment and spanking. And for the state to come in and say that's illegal is a direct violation of biblical mandate. And this is a legitimate case of civil disobedience because it is the state telling the parent that they cannot do something that God's Word directly mandates that they should do. 
and this needs to be made a court test case right away because it's an absolutely foolish law and is the result of, of liberal thinking that man is not inherently uh, evil, that man is basically good. So it's going to have all kinds of negative consequences, and I'm, I'm hoping somebody has the, has the uh, intestinal fortitude and the uh, bankroll to do that because it needs to be taken all the way to the Supreme Court. Virtue is related to character development, and character development doesn't come naturally. It has to be trained. There has to be child training. There has to be discipline on the part of a child, whereas values are related to individual lifestyle choices. It's, it tends to be subjective. And our fifth observation is that there are three cardinal Christian virtues, and everything in the Christian life ultimately comes back to to these three Christian virtues. In fact, someone has said the entire Christian life is built on this tripod of faith, hope, and love. And that's the foundation. So when it comes to application in the Christian life, almost everything comes back to one of those three aspects. Faith has to do not only with the act of trust, but also that body of what is that that body of content of what is being trusted, what is being believed. And so you have faith on the one hand. We walk by faith and not by sight, and we'll get into what that means a little bit later on. And also hope. Hope has to do with a confident expectation of where history is going, that God has a definite plan, and he's working everything out according to that plan, and that plan is going to culminate in a series of, of judgments. There will be the judgment seat of Christ where believers will have their, their production evaluated. There will be a judgment of tribulation uh, uh, martyrs. There will be a judgment of uh, tribulation survivors of Jews and of Gentiles, the sheep and the goat judgments, and the judgments related to the, uh, uh, the, the, the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, uh, 1 and following. This all takes place at the end of the tribulation period before the millennium. And then there will, of course, be the ultimate judgment of the great white throne judgment. But all of history is moving towards accountability. Everyone is going to have to stand before God at one point or another and give an account of what he has done in life. Now, for the believer, that judgment is not related to where we will spend eternity, but it's related to rewards, and it's related to inheritance, and it's related to position and privilege in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. For the unbeliever, it's going to have to do with with judgment and eternal condemnation. So we have hope that is our confident expectation of the future, and then love, which is the highest virtue. Love is that which will abide and continue even into eternity, whereas faith and hope are, are temporal virtues. Love is an eternal virtue, and love orients righteousness which is God's highest, uh, highest virtue. It orients righteousness to relationships. Now think about that for a while. That what love does is it orients righteousness to relationships. It's not just righteousness operating in a vacuum, but it's operating within a relationship. So you have passages like John 3.16, God so loved the world, that he did something in terms of that relationship. He gave his son. Uh, Romans uh, 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You have all the various parables in the Gospels that deal with how forgiveness is to operate to those who treat you poorly. You have the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. You have various other uh, parables related to forgiveness. Peter says, how many times should I, should we forgive someone who offends us? And the Lord says, 70 times 7. In other words, it doesn't matter how many times, and we'll get into this next, uh, next week in 
our study on uh, on confession and repentance and forgiveness, but it doesn't matter how many times somebody offends you, attacks you, assaults you, if they come back and say, I, I repent, which as we'll see in that passage is, is uh, a change of mind, and if they do it seven times during the day, how many times do you forgive them? Jesus says every time. It doesn't matter if their attitude's flippant. It doesn't matter if you don't trust them anymore. Every time they come, he says, you forgive them. Now, that's not easy, but that's this virtue of love. That's one of the hardest things for us to understand. We have different dimensions that we talk about for that love. We talk about it being unconditional. We talk about it being impersonal. We don't have to know the person at all. Uh, we talk about personal love. But fundamentally, I think that, that the whole concept of love is seeking and doing the best for the object of love. Seeking and doing the best for the object of love. But see, there's a real little tough thing in that, that statement, that definition I just gave you. Because if you're some sort of arrogant, self-absorbed, spoiled, rotten individual, and you think of that definition of doing what's best for the other person, how are you going to define best? See, that word best is immediately brings in a whole, a whole boatload of value judgments. It's only when you have the divine viewpoint of divine righteousness that you can truly understand what is best for someone else. That's why love has to be virtue-driven. Because when it's not, it becomes self-serving, and then it's no longer love. It just it's just a perversion of love. So, as I've thought about this down through the years, trying to define what love is, and looking at at the cross, which is the example. If we're going to even if anyone's going to define love, you have to start at the cross. You don't start with your experience. You don't start with your marriage. You don't start with your dating experience. You don't start with you know how you feel about certain things. You start with what happened on the cross. And what happens on the cross is that God is going to do what it takes to do the best thing possible for the object of his love, no matter what it costs him personally. But as soon as you use these, these words like better or the superlative best, you immediately bring into the discussion some sort of value judgment. Well, what, where do you get these values? Where do you get these norms and standards? Where are you going to make a choice that this is best versus that's best? Well, that can only come when you have the objective standard of righteousness coming from the character of God. So, undergirding these uh, last three verses here in this paragraph, we have the three Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. Now, in this third section, I said that the believer is to persevere in light of our future expectation. That's our hope. The believer is to persevere now in light of our future expectation and to continue in faith and patience to realize a full inheritance. Don't give up. Don't get become weary again and again. We're going to see this this note in Hebrews. Don't tire. Keep with it. Run the race. Finish well. So he says, we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the goal of a full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Then I started talking about, well, what does it mean to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises? And I went over to, I'm going to skip a couple of verses here in the interest of time to bring us to our point in, well, first of all, the whole doctrine of imitation. Paul says that we're to be imitators of him, 1 Corinthians 4.16. And then, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. See, you have to understand what he's saying. And uh, when he talks about being an imitator of himself, he's not being self-centered. He is saying, imitate me in the ways that I imitate Christ. Christ is the standard. He's the template. And Paul is saying, I give you an example in my life of what Christ is like and imitate me in those areas. 
So imitate me as just as I also am of Christ. Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, twice he talks about being an imitator of himself. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you also become you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. So uh, imitation there is related to is related to imitating in the way that he handled uh, adversity. Now in verse 12 he says that we are to imitate those who through faith and patience, and the word patience there is the Greek word makrothemia, meaning long-suffering, forbearance, self-restraint, waiting and waiting. It's related to waiting on the Lord. It is different from endurance. Endurance has to do with with hanging in there, uh, for a long period of time in a difficult situation, whereas patience uh, emphasizes just waiting. And remember, they're waiting for those promises to come, waiting for God to fulfill his plan uh, for Israel. So I went from there over to James 5, because James 5 gives us the same kind of, of um, exhortation. And what happens is that as soon as we start hearing people say, well, imitate Paul. I can't imitate Paul. Paul was super. Who am I? But Paul says the everyday believer should imitate him in, in that he's imitating Christ. And we have a tendency to put Paul and Moses and David and Isaiah and Daniel up on these pedestals that, well, they were just they were just super spiritual. But we can't we can't really uh, uh, come up to their standard. We can't do the kinds of things that they did, and that is a lack of faith in, in God. And that's where I kind of where I was headed last time. I was hoping to get there a little earlier tonight, but we got sidetracked on a couple of things. Uh, James five says this: Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Once again, the focus is on the Lord's coming and ultimate accountability. And he uses an illustration of how the farmer waits for the for his produce to come in. And then he says in verse 8, You also be patient, establish your hearts, don't grumble against one another, uh, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, emphasis on eventual accountability. Then in verse 10, My, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. That's the same idea we have in Hebrews 6. Go back to those Old Testament prophets. They had an example of suffering and patience. You follow their example. And so he said, well, wait a minute, I, I, I can't do that. Those guys were really super spiritual. Well, look at what James says in 5.17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Look at what Elijah did, his confrontational Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and, and Asherah, where uh, and earlier he had uh, walked in and confronted Ahab with his sin and said, it's not going to rain until I say so. And then he went off and the Lord hid him and protected him, provided for him for uh, quite a period of time. How can we be like that? This guy walked on water almost. I mean, he raised the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. How can we be like that? Well, Scripture says that we may not do exactly those same works, but you can be just as a mature believer as Elijah or Moses or David or Paul, you may not be used in the same way. You're not going to be an apostle. You're not going to be a king of Israel. You're not going to be a writer of Scripture. But they didn't have anything going for them that you don't have going for you. In fact, when compared to Old Testament prophets and Old Testament leaders, we have much more going for us. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. We have a completed canon of Scripture. We have all of this that they did not have. And so we can go far beyond them in terms of our own uh, spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. So what is it, though, that made these men, Paul and the others, such spiritual giants? And last time I looked at the first 
principle, and that is that they trusted God. They were willing to completely sell out to God. They had the will, the guts, the gumption, whatever it is, to take up the challenge to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, I thought a lot about this verse. What does it mean to walk by faith and not by sight? When you're walking by sight, it's not the act of seeing that you're walking by. It's what you're seeing, right? So when it says you walk by sight, sight is the means, but the object of the sight is really what is being talked about. This is a metaphor of the means for the effect, basically, or metonymy of the, of the, of the means for the effect. So when we look at the comparison, we walk by faith, it's not the act of faith that we're walking by, it's the object of the faith that we're walking by. Just as it's the object of the sight that you're walking by or the object of faith that you're walking by. And the object of faith is the content of Scripture. This is why it's so important for us to go through all of the scriptures, the entire counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation as it addresses every dimension and every aspect of life as it focuses on all of the various areas of human experience. The Bible addresses everything because the Bible is the word of the Creator to the creature on how he is to understand and interpret and interact with every dimension of creation from the social dimension to the biological dimension to the historical dimension to the geographical dimension everything is related to uh, or has to be related to the will and the plan of God and so the second point that I had made under that last time was that since they had a biblical view of reality moving beyond the first one First point was they had the will, the gumption, the guts to believe God and take up the challenge to walk by faith and not by sight. Second, since they had a biblical view of reality, that came out of their doctrine. That because they were completely sold out to the Word of God as that which defined reality so that what the Word of God said was more real to them than anything that they experienced, anything that, that came by empiricism or rationalism. The Word of God provided them with a biblical view of reality. It gave them norms and standards that were absolutes. It emphasized virtue. Uh, This biblical view of reality informed their plans and their procedures, their goals and their methods, that everything that they had as as an unsaved unbeliever, all of their values were completely turned upside down and were destroyed radically look at Moses for an example when Moses starts off he's attempting to bring about the deliverance of the Jews in his own power and so he kills the abusive overseer but God has to take him out in the wilderness for 40 years to teach him and train him and hone him in what divine viewpoint methodology is before Moses is going to be ready to be the uh, deliverer of the Jews from slavery uh, in Egypt. And that's the process of Christian life. And, and whether you're talking about the spiritual life of the Old Testament or the spiritual life of the New Testament, it's that human viewpoint reliance upon self that has to be totally eradicated and destroyed before that servant of God can truly serve God. So these men were totally submitted to the plan of God and they became servants of God and servants of Christ. That's the difference between a Paul and most believers is that he was 100% sold out to serving Christ. It's not a matter that he had something that you don't have. What he chose to do was something different than what most of us choose to do. We're still trying to figure out who we're serving. Deuteronomy 6.13 emphasizes this dimension of service. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 4.13, but in Matthew 4.13, he, uh, Jesus inserts the word only. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him only and take oaths in his name. That is to be our, our focal point. Revelation, I mean, Romans 12.1 talks about this in terms of service. Again, just as, as Deuteronomy 6.13 does. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your logikos, your logical reasonable. When you start, when your starting point is the Word of God, this is the logical result. When I was, I was probably in college, and this sounds a little trite, but it was a, you know, it just struck me at the time as as really encapsulating the issue. If there is a God, if there's no God, nothing matters. Right? There's no God, nothing matters. Everything's relative. We're just a cosmic accident. We're just a, an accidental blob of protoplasm. But if there is a God, then nothing else matters. Whatever that is going on in, in, in our careers, in our families, in our hobbies, in our lives... The only thing that ultimately matters is who God is and what he said. That's what all the Bible is about, is who God is. So we are to present, but when the way Paul says this is present your bodies, he's talking about the entirety of who we are, is to serve God. And this isn't some one-shot decision like you'll find in the old, you know, the old holiness days of walking the sawdust trail and uh, making a one-shot decision for Jesus. Uh, It's an ongoing uh, reality. Every day we have to decide. The terminology that was often used by Chafer and by Schofield and men of that generation was yieldedness. Someone else has said it's just authority orientation. That's all it is, is recognizing that God is the boss and that you're going to be completely sold out to serving him. So you present your, yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your rational, it's the rational conclusion of what Christ did on the cross. It's your reasonable service. Latreia here is one of two different words used in, in Scripture for worship. And this has to do with the worship of our personal life as opposed to corporate worship, which is, uh, uses a little bit different uh, terminology. So we are to serve God. This is following in the pattern of Jesus. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, here he is as the Son of Man who is the heir of the kingdoms. Whenever you read the word Son of Man, you always have to go back to that Old Testament image of the Son of Man coming in Daniel 7 and destroying the kingdoms of man to establish his kingdom. So the Son of Man, while it emphasizes his humanity, is an eschatological title that is focusing on the coming of the Messiah as the culmination of of all of God's plan in history to be the king who will rule all the nations. So here's the Son of Man who is the one who has every right to be, the, to be served, but he comes to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So to be Christ-like means to be serving God in a capacity that serves, serves others. Matthew 23:11. Jesus said, But he who is greatest among you shall be your Servant. Now, all of this flows out of which virtue? Faith, hope, or love? It flows out of love. All Christian service flows out of that virtue of love uh, for one another. Luke sixteen thirteen. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And the issue for most Christians that goes through their whole life is that from the for 50 years they're trying to figure out if they're really going to serve God, and five minutes later they're back to serving themselves, and they never finalize the decision. That's the difference between most of us and the Apostle Paul 
and Daniel and Moses and all the others is because we just can't quite get to that point of saying, well, I'm going to give 100% to serving the Lord. Now, that's our second point. And I said there were five different points that I want to go through on what makes the difference between these men and why we're supposed to imitate them and what is typical of most Christian experience. So we'll come back and look at the other three points next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these things and be uh, challenged and reminded that we can follow the same example of Paul and and of uh, Matthew and Luke and John because we have the same Holy Spirit, we have the same Scripture, we have all the same assets. The issue boils down to our volition and whether or not we're really willing to trust you and to uh, be fully devoted to serving you. We pray that you challenge us with the things we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.